Let me pray as we begin our time in the word of the Lord together. Father, we thank you so much for this word. And we ask, Lord, for your presence and your blessing on this time, Lord, as we, as, we, as we talk through Psalm 25 and the message that it has for us. Lord, would you write it on our hearts? May we worship you and glorify you, but also be transformed by what you have for us this morning. Please be with me, Lord, and guide me and be with us as we hear from your psalm. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a campus minister, one of the things that, that I think is very fun is to sort of let people into my world. I like to share stories about what it's like to be a campus minister and, and to share what ministry is like. And uh, one of the most common questions that I have gotten over the last few years and where I find myself sitting across from students all the time uh, at lunch tables and at coffee shops is about finding God's will. They, they want to know, they want to be able, how can I know God's will for my life? You know, what major should I choose or switch to? Who should I date? When will I get married? Will I like this job? Where should I go next? Or sometimes they just, you know, straight up say, how do I find God's will for my life? I don't know what to do. And, and this shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Christianity Today says that the most common question they've ever got of all time has always been, how do I find God's will for my life? It's the most asked question. But, but this question has been pointed out by, by many pastors and, and sort of professors is somewhat of a more uh, recent and modern question. People have been examining entrails and secret tea leaves and looking for Jesus' face on toast sometimes. Uh, but people have been looking at entrails for thousands of years, but not necessarily the church. The sermons of old don't spend a lot of time talking about it and obsessing over it like we do. And the reason has been pointed out by, by many pastors is that we feel, we tend to feel a great sense of control for our own lives. Uh, even though, right, none of us have chosen to be born or to exist or, or our talents or our skills or, or our parents or the country we were born in or even the, 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 you know, the century we've been born in. Nevertheless, you know, many things about us, we, we really don't have much say about it. But nevertheless, we ultimately feel like we are really the ones in control. And for Christians then, for some Christians, God becomes this sort of wild card, the one who can ruin the control that we, that we have. And so we must react and study and delve into the secrets of God and to the Bible so that we can get back that control and do all the right things so that we can get a blessed life. Because just like my students, we believe very deeply that we have tremendous power to ruin or succeed in life, and therefore we must find God's will. So with this question in mind then, let us turn to Psalm 25. This text is one that I've learned a lot from over the years, from many Reformed pastors and professors, and it touches and is about many things, but one theme that runs through it is that God guides. One theme that runs through it is that God guides. We learn that, that God does plan, that he instructs his people, and that he is shaping his people to be the type of people who are guided by the Lord. But ultimately, God is the guide. People often want the plans of God to get the blessings of God, but they don't want the guide. In our sin, we also don't want to have our, our hearts shaped and changed over a lifetime so that we must walk in dependence with God as our guide. But we already don't do what he says but we want his blessings anyway without actually following him. But David is going to show us another way. David is, is going to show us that the people of God deeply desire the guide. 
and uh, that the heart of, of those being guided by God is one of faith and repentance and ultimately covenant faithfulness. And so today we're going to see two things from our text. The first is we're going to talk about the fact that God does guide his people. And the second, we're going to, to see who are the types of people or what is their character? What is, what is the heart of the people that God guides? So the first is God guides his people. Now, now Psalm 25 is a psalm of lament where David is lamenting his enemies and the effect that they are having on his life. And he is also lamenting his own sins and, and the way that they have led him, these two things, have led him to this time of trouble. And so he, he returns to God and he asks God for guidance and rescue in this time of suffering and in trouble. The, its power and the purpose of this psalm is that the people of God, right, it not only did it help David, but that the people of God would sing it for years and years after. And as we sing this song, this psalm together, it begins to shape us and teach us and reshape our hearts. So as we sing these, te- these, these words, as we study these words of David together, we are shaped together as the people of God. And so the psalms have tremendous power to shape us and to make our hearts more like the Lord's. And so as we look at this psalm, I want to start by looking uh, at verse 12 with you. Verse 12 says, uh, David asked the question, Who is the man who fears the Lord? This person, him, will he instruct in the way that he should choose? What David is pointing out here is that those who fear God from the heart are those who are ultimately guided by the Lord. And fear here does actually mean fear. It does but it also has the added dimension of, of awe, of respect, of reverence, and in worship. So it is fear, but the word is more than just fear. It's also awe and worship and reverence. And it's this heart that Christians have that actually understand the God of the Bible. Uh, he's a God of justice. He's a God of power, of sheer splendor and holiness. And when people come into contact with this God throughout the Bible, they experience that fear. But at the same time, that same God is also kind and soft and approachable, like a mother hen who wants to gather her chicks. And this person, whose heart fears the Lord, who is in awe of reverence of him, we learn in the Bible, are the types of people that God guides. And this is good news. As we learn in this psalm, as well as in the rest of the Bible, that God does actually have a plan for our lives. He's the author of the story of the universe, and he's intimately involved in the lives of his people and in the lives of our world. Paul says to those of us who have been saved by grace that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Which means God has not only made us, but he's also made our path and given us a purpose that we would walk in them and ultimately fulfill God's design and purpose which is very, very different, let me say, than YOLO, right? You only live once, uh, which is sort of the anthem of Gen Z and millennials like me, right? Like, you know, you only live once, so you might as well have as much fun as possible. Uh, who knows what's going to happen after death, so, you know, just live it up. But it's also very different than the sort of scientific narrative that I went to college and heard that we are all just random chances and all sufferings and blessings and, and life is just pure luck and there's really no purpose or meaning behind any of this. No, no, the Bible says we are God-made and that our lives are God-designed. We are God-made and God-designed and our lives are God-made uh, and God-designed and they're shaped as well and he is guiding us on a path 
that ultimately is telling the story of cosmic redemption that we see um, ultimately in Christ Jesus and throughout the Bible. You see, when I was a kid, um, there was this commercial that would come on at like 3 in the morning, uh, you know, when all the weird commercials came on in TV. Uh, yeah, and it was for fortune tellers. And there was this, there was basically, they would say, you know, you can call this number and for like 20 cents a minute, people would tell you uh, your best future and give you instant guidance. And so customers would say things like, you know, I called and, you know, they knew things about me that no one could ever possibly know. And I asked him who I should marry and I found my perfect husband, you know, and um, another person, a guy would come on and he said, I was having all these job offers and I didn't know which one to choose. And I was like, all right, you're obviously doing all right. Um, you don't need to brag. But he's like, but then I asked them, you know, which job should I choose? And I chose the rest job and they told me the best job. And then they like throw money up in the air <laughs> and, and, and be like, and they told me exactly which one to choose. And now my life is all better. Uh, and I'm living my dream life now. And you know what? I think, if we're honest, for some of us, at least for me, even when I first became a Christian, this is exactly what I wanted. I, I wanted to, to be a Christian. I wanted, um, I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to pray a little bit. And I wanted God to tell me exactly what to do so that I could have all of his blessings. We want shortcuts. We want security. We want guarantees. And what we want is God's guidance, but we don't want the guide. Uh, but God doesn't give you the map of your life. He doesn't give you his secret will. He gives you the guide. He gives you himself. J.I. Packer, a Reformed theologian, put it this way. He said, imagine for a second that you get to a city and you're trying to find a certain place, but you get lost. What would you do? And also you can't say open Google Maps because he wrote this before that existed. I think even before MapQuest. So you can't say that either. He said, well, what would you do? He said, well, you'd have to find somebody who's from there who knows their way around. And you'd have to go up to them and ask them, hey, can you tell me how to get to the old sawmill? First, you know, what's a sawmill? Um, anyways, that person looks at you and says, you know, it's basically impossible for me to tell you. So here, let me give you a map. And so after drawing this incredibly confusing map, you both look at each other and he says, you know what? This is too confusing. I'm going that way anyways. Why don't I just hop in your car and tell you how to get there? So he gets in. And now, instead of getting the map, you're getting the guide, which is way better. Think about it. With the guide, you're actually still only getting small sections and small little, little pockets of directions. You know, turn right there. Take a left on Main Street. You went too far. You're going to need to take a U-turn. You don't know where you are, but you can rest knowing your guide does. And you can rest knowing that he'll lead you to where you're needing to go. And if you screw up, he'll be able to bring you back. But you have to be patient and you ultimately have to trust the guide. In the same way, God doesn't give us the map to our life. He doesn't give us the secret will to our life. You don't need the map. Uh, you wouldn't get the whole map if he gave it to you and you probably wouldn't like it if you saw it. Could you imagine if he gave you the map to your whole life, right? You know, God, I'm going to need a lot more money, uh, probably especially from the ages of 18 to 24, at least that's what every college student says. And from 35 to 44, I'm going to need a lot less suffering. In fact, as I look at this map, could you just get rid of all of that suffering? I don't really want any of it. That's immediately what we would do. But here's the thing. God doesn't give you the map. He gives you himself. And guidance is not something you find. Guidance is something that God does. He directs our steps. He makes our path straight. He walks with us. Guidance is something 
that um, not something that God gives as much as something God does as we live in relationship with him and as we follow him and keep in step with the Spirit. So the Bible doesn't really teach you how to find God's secret will because it's not really that secret, as we're about to see. It doesn't tell you how to find the secret plan for your life. Instead, it teaches what a person looks like who is guided. And until you get this, you will be looking for visions and signs and dreams, which normally just aren't the way that God gives. That's just normally not the way that he works. So what is the person like who gets guided by God? What is the person like who ultimately gets God's guidance? And there are four things from the text that we're going to talk about uh, that we'll see are true of people that God guides. The first thing we see is in verses 4 through 5. It says this. He says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Now, what this verse is telling us is that a person who is going to be guided by God is a person who knows and is saturated in the scriptures. This is a person who who knows God's commands, his laws, his wisdom, and his word inside out. Why? Because the Bible contains the fullness of God's will. The Bible contains the fullness of God's will. There's a question that says, what do do the scriptures principally teach? And it principally teaches what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of man. And David says, in order to be guided by God, I first need God to teach me all of his ways and all of his word, which is contained in the scriptures. In other words, the people who get guided by God are the people who spend so much time in the Bible that they get transformed by it. So that the things that they like, so that the, the, the things that they hate, so that the things that they want to do are actually the things that are contained in the scriptures. It transforms them. Their hearts get rewritten, so they make wise decisions and do God's wills and walk in his ways because they've learned in it and they've been reshaped by the scriptures. Now, I know what some of us are thinking immediately, and that is, man, that is not what I wanted to hear. You know, I've tried reading the Bible a few times, and I couldn't find God's will for my life there. I need direction. I need inspiration now. And the thought of rewriting myself over a lifetime and spending so much time in, in the Bible uh, and learning these things, is, it's really hard. I remember when I, I first moved to China. I lived there for about five years, and when I first moved there, I didn't know any Chinese. And so when I heard people talk, I couldn't tell when a word started or ended. I didn't even know when, how, like, I just was like, this just sounds like a giant sound. Uh, and I couldn't distinguish anything. And I thought to myself, what if my plan was, you know, I just buy a Chinese dictionary and I, you know, have a cup of coffee in the morning. Maybe I'll take a picture of both of them together. And I'll just sort of pray over that, hoping for a little inspiration, uh, pray over it. And then go out and think, all right, you know, it's time to convert people and negotiate rental contracts. Would that work? Of course not. But so many think if I could just read my Bible five minutes, maybe a week, maybe a day, pray for some little inspiration, and then I'll be fine. But the Bible doesn't teach that because that's not enough, is it? You have to be saturated in the scriptures. You have to know them. We have to be retrained. Our brain needs to be rewritten by, by, by what the Bible teaches and how to think biblically. And so if we want to be guided by God, the first thing we have to do, and the first thing that David talks about here, is that we need to be saturated in God's word. Teach me, Lord. Show me your path. Guide me into your truth. 
The second thing you'll probably notice in our text is that David is, he's talking about guidance. He's asking for God's guidance. But interspersed throughout this entire psalm, David is continually confessing his sin. He's continually confessing his sins. Why? If you look at verse 9, David says, God guides, he guides the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his ways. Humility here, David is emphasizing, is being teachable, it is being compliant, is being the type of person who hears these things and actually in his heart wants to change and wants to do them. What this means is that the people of God who get God's guidance are the people who are teachable, who are the people who are willing to obey, who the people who are, who are wanting to change, who when they get God's guidance, they're the type of people who say, yes, I would like to turn from this ways that have sort of led me to my ruin and misery like David. I want to confess those things, and I want to be the type of people when God does give me his guidance that I actually do it, that I actually do it. This is humility. They understand they're not perfect, hence David's confessions. But when they see their mistakes, they're adamant to change and to follow God. This, uh, this makes me think of the story of Naaman in the Old Testament, who was the Syrian general. And Naaman ends up coming to Israel. He ends up coming to Israel because he's treated kindly by an unnamed Israelite slave girl. Unnamed Israelite slave girl. That she's his slave almost certainly means that he or his troops has killed her family and taken her to be his slave. But because she's been humbled, because she's been humbled, she still chooses to follow God, even, even though, even to a person that's enslaved her and most likely killed her family, because of what she does, because of her humility, because she understands that, that the word of the Lord is not something just to hear but to actually do. She tells Naaman where to go, and Naaman is both healed and ultimately converted to follow the Lord. Humility, then, is concerned not only with knowing God's word, but with having a heart that wants to do it. Yet if we're so concerned about all of our decisions and and how to get God's blessings, and yet we have places in our lives that are constantly stuck in sin, right? Maybe we're selfish. Maybe we're, we're, never, you know, we're never quite generous. Maybe we, we lie to people. Maybe they're little white lies, but we're kind of always lying. Or maybe we're lazy. You know, if I'm disobedient with these other parts of my life, and I, I want to know God's will for me, I can tell you, it's to repent. The first thing is to repent. You have to obey. You're not in God's will now. And I can tell you what the Lord requires of you is, is to repent and to follow those things that you already know. Because he leads the humble. He doesn't just want you to to know the word. He wants you to be the type of person that is teachable, that is humble, that does what God actually says. You see, we all want to know God's works and his plan for our lives, but the way we'll actually benefit from knowing his will and benefit from his guidance is if we're the type of people who are willing to follow him and do what he actually says. Third, if you look at verse 10, it says this. It says, All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. What God is essentially saying here in verse 10 is essentially the same thing that he says in Romans 8.28. And we know for those that for those who love God, all things will ultimately work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What this means is that we should not have such a small and narrow view of God and his sovereignty 
that we think that somehow God's plan for us is that we have five or six big decisions in life that we need to get perfectly right, and if we don't, our life is ruined. Like marry the right person, go to the right school, pick the right career, move to the right city, and if we miss one of those, life is over. Life is ruined. It will never be good. You see, a lot of people feel like God's will for their life or God's plan for their life is kind of like a flight that has six connecting stops along the way. And if you miss one connection, you know you'll never get to your dream vacation. Instead of the beaches of Mexico, you're in the cold mountains of New Mexico. I don't know. Something like that, right? If we miss one, then, then, then life is ruined and now I'm on God's plan B. But the Bible teaches us that everything we do, even our mistakes, even our failures, are part of God accomplishing his will in our lives. It's part of a God accomplishing his will and his purpose in our lives, which means it's going to be okay. That's what this means. If you're in Christ Jesus, it's going to be okay. We can rest from the paralyzing anxiety about crushing our futures, which is why we're so obsessed with asking this question. If you remember the story of Jacob in the Bible, God talks about um, Jacob and Esau, and he says, God's, God says the older will serve the younger. But then we meet Jacob, and Jacob is a liar, and he cheats, and he does all these terrible things. And for the most part, he has a really, really hard life because of his sin and because of the things that he does. And yet when he's out there, you know, messing up, he ultimately meets his wife. And from his offspring, we see in the Bible, ultimately comes from the Messiah. Ultimately comes the Messiah. Now, was that God's plan B? Does it make his sin okay? Of course not. But God was still at work, and his plan unfolded in Jacob's life exactly as God had ordained, despite his failures. Now, think through this with me for a second. Let's just like, take this logic to, to its full completion. What if, we married the wrong, what if you married the wrong person? Well, then you're having all the wrong children, and all their children will be the wrong children, and all their jobs and contributions to the world will all be the wrong contributions, and their lives are screwed up forever because they shouldn't be here. And it's God scratching his head up in the heavens saying, well, what do I do with these people? I didn't know they were going to come this, to this earth. What are they doing here? No, of course not, because he's the author. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful to his covenant people. Meaning if you're in Christ, you can't screw up your life, at least not the way you're terrified of. It's impossible. He's too great for that. And he loves you too much. And he has too many promises that he will bring to completion. Meaning that we get to relax and trust God as life unfolds, as we rest in his power, as we trust, as we try with all of our effort to be faithful and to follow him, we can rest in his power and guidance that we're going to be okay. Lastly, look with me at verse 14. David says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Now, if you have your ESV Bible, you might have a little footnote, as mine does, that says, for the word friendship, it has, uh, you know, this little footnote says, says, or the secret counsel of the Lord, or the secret counsels. And what this verse is telling us is that for those of us who fear the Lord, for those of us who, who are in union with Christ, who, who depend on God, who know his word, who obey his word, who are striving after him, who are, who are pursuing whatever glorifies God. If we are doing these things, if our heart has been transformed, we can trust our desires. 
We can simply trust our desires. With renewed hearts, we can do the things in life that we think are good and best and ultimately glorifying to the Lord. Meaning that when I know God's word and I'm abiding in him and I'm filled with his spirit and I'm repenting of sin and I'm walking with him, I can simply ask in life, what do I want to do? Trusting that God has been the one who has shaped me, even placing the desires in my own heart that I love what God loves and hate what he hates and I can simply make choices and faithfully do them. You see, when I first became a Christian, people always told me, you just have to pray. You know, if you pray enough, you'll ultimately find God's will, which was really like if you're a spiritual enough person, you're good enough. If you pray hard enough or pray the I don't know what they meant, you will be the type of person that can ultimately find God's will. And what I did all the time was I would pray and I'd be like, all right, everybody, here is God's will. And then a few days later, I would say, turns out I was praying and that was not God's will. This is actually God's will. And five days later, it's like, you know, we should, new subject, this is God's will for my life. And I was just doing this all the time. But let us be very careful in doing this, and this is not what I'm, I'm not advocating for that. Lest we divine things that God has not divined. But what is taught in the scriptures is that God does lead, and he shapes people to walk in his way so that we can simply at times just do what we think is best and then faithfully and wholeheartedly do that, knowing that even if we've made a mistake, God will be there to help us get through it. When we think about decision-making, then we ask first, is it talked about in the scriptures? If it says to do that, we should do that. If it doesn't, then don't do that. Then we ask, but am I willing? Am I willing to do this? After this, we ask, will this ultimately bring God glory? And finally, after we've done all these things, we just simply ask, what do I want to do? What do I think is best? And then faithfully do what you've decided. Pastor Kevin DeYoung, uh, who's a PCA pastor, he wrote a book on this very idea, and the title of the book is, is called Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to the Christian Life. But then he has this subtitle that says, how, or how to make decisions without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, which is when you're like, you know, I've done this, <laughs> which is where you're like, all right, God, I don't know what to do, so you just like open a random page of your Bible and put your finger down and read it, you know, and it's like, and there was 180,000 troops or something like that. And you're like, all right, I guess I got to pray 180,000 times and then I'll figure this out. You know, without doing that, without casting lots, liver shivers, writings in the sky, Jesus's face on toast, etc., God's secret counsel is for those who fear him. And we simply can walk with him, trusting as we've done all these different things that he is with us. You know, as I studied this psalm, I was reminded of a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He talked about this psalm and he said, you know, in verse 12, David asked the question, who is the one who fears the Lord? Who is the one that fears the Lord? And Spurgeon said, we read this, but we don't actually ask the question. And because we don't ask the question, we think it's us, (laughs) right? He says, because we don't ask the question, we automatically assume that he's talking about us. But he said, you know, if I'm honest with myself, um, there are times in life when I fear everything but the Lord. There are times in life when I fear everything else but the Lord, which means this cannot be about me. You know who this is about, he says. This ultimately points us to Jesus. Jesus is the one who perfectly feared the Lord. And this psalm is shaping us and moving us and guiding us to ultimately trust in our great King Jesus. 
You see, Jesus is the one who arrived on earth and made the invisible God visible. He is our perfect example, and he is the ultimate guide, showing us what it looks like to live every day and every moment guided by the Lord. You see, he's God's very word made flesh. He is the one who was perfectly guided by God, and every word and thing he did came from the mouth of the Father. But Jesus was ultimately guided by the Father to his death so that we could be guided by God into life. He is the one who feared the Lord perfectly, and ultimately he was struck down. Now we who are in Christ, who fear the Lord, we are not afraid of being struck down because Jesus already took that in our place, but we know that our sins are forgiven. We are the sinners in this psalm who are now being guided into the way by Jesus Christ. We are the covenant breakers, but God is faithful and has rescued us and has showed to us covenant faithfulness and an unending steadfast love. Because of Jesus, we are no longer rebels, but the ones who are guided by God because he's become our friend and he has given us his spirit. And because of Jesus, we've been transformed and are daily being rewired by the very word of God. We're the ones who obey because the gospel has so humbled us by grace that the very thing that Jesus asks us to do is the very thing every day we are growing more and more to want to do. Because of Jesus, we are the ones who rest, knowing that all the ways of God are loving and faithful towards those who are obey him and are his covenant people. And we know this because of the cross. Because of Jesus, we're the people who know God. We haven't just read about him, but we trust in him and everything that he does because he is the God who saved us. Therefore, we trust him and we choose to ask, Lord, what will glorify your name? Because everything else feels less. And then we make our decisions. Because of Jesus, God is now our guide. God is our friend. And we know he will instruct us as we walk with him in faith. God is our Lord. He is our guide. And he will instruct sinners in the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much, Lord, that you would rescue us, that you would guide sinners in the way, Lord, which all leads to you. And so, Lord, as we we leave this place, I pray, Lord, that we would walk faithfully, that we would desire deeply to glorify and honor your name. Lord, write your word on our hearts. Humble us in our hearts that we may be the type of people who love to do your will, not as a burden, but as rest, as delight, as joy. And Lord, may you give us great comfort and strength that all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful to your covenant children. May we rest in you forever.